All right, so we are in John chapter 12. Um, John chapter 12 starts with Jesus um, going to the little town of Bethany where Mary pours the ointment on his feet. A year's worth of wages go into that one act of worship. And then last week, we looked at the triumphal entry. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowd praises him. Most of them didn't know who he really was, but they were praising him. And now we're going to look at his first speech in Jerusalem. The king has entered Jerusalem, and it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, so this is, this is Passover. People, literally millions are going to Jerusalem to worship at the feast, um, and among them uh, were some Greeks. Now, this is interesting because in John's gospel, the only non-Jews that Jesus has dealt with it, are, are the, the Samaritans. There's the woman at the well and then the other Samaritans. But now there's this mention of Greeks. These are non-Jews. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Why would they go to Philip? Because he has a non-Jewish name. He has kind of a Gentile name. They go, oh, he's one of the inner circle. His name is Philip. Maybe we can get an in talking to Philip. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew is actually kind of a non-Jewish name too. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. Now, we don't know if Jesus ever goes and talks to these Greeks, but here's Jesus' thought. I am... I am coming here not just for Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles. And here's why I have come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when I hear the word glorified, I think of something spectacular and, and, and something that uh, uh, is, is going to put him up on a pedestal. Well, he's going to be up on a pedestal, but it's a cross. He's going to be glorified by first being utterly humiliated. And then he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. First thing he talks about is his death. For me to bear fruit, I have to die. So he talks about his death. But then he goes on to talk about our death, that we must die also. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I got to die, and you got to die. And then he talks about the reward if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Seeds got to die to be productive. I got to die. You got to die. And oh, when you die, there's a reward. So here's a little out outline we're going to follow. We're going to look at his death. We're going to look at our death. And we're going to look at our destiny. And I'm, I'm going to throw you for a little bit of a loop. I'm going, to, I'm going to go his death, 
Then we're going to talk about our destiny because our destiny is the motive for, for how we can die. So we're going to move that. It's, so in your bulletin, I think it says one, three, two. Um, that's not a mistake. That's, that's purposeful. Okay. So here we go. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Seeds only produce fruit when they're in the ground buried. I am going to produce fruit. I'm going to save Jews and Gentiles. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to die and be buried. All right. Now, this is true of Jesus, and it's true of us. We all need to die. And I'm not just talking about physical death. It's a lifestyle. But let me make a, uh, an important distinction between his death and our death. Okay? We all got to die to produce fruit, but we got to make a huge distinction. His death is an atoning death. In other words, he's dying in our place to pay for our sin. Our death is an imitating death where we are following him in dying. Okay? Our death does not pay for anyone's sins, including our own. His death pays for our sin. Our death imitates him, and it, you know what it does? By living a lifestyle of dying, it attracts others to him. Right? So, so let's keep that distinction in mind. Right? So his death, right? he says, I, I, like a seed is going to be buried in the earth, I have to be buried in the earth. And he clarifies why he's going to die earlier in the Gospels. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I think when we hear the word ransom, I think the first thing most people think of is if somebody's kidnapped, to buy them back, you pay a ransom. The, the word originally came from the slave market where you could purchase a slave out of slavery and set them free. But, but Jesus is saying his life is a ransom for many. His death buys us out of damnation, out of slavery. All right? His death is unique. Now, our death is an imitating death. Let me show you where the Apostle Paul um, ties, uh, ties this all together. He says, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, okay? So when he says, I've suffered the loss of all things, he used to just revel in his status as a Pharisee, as a Jew, as keeping all the laws. And then he heard about Christ. And he said, you know what? I died. I died to living for all that glory. I mean, I was on a pedestal. 
I was a Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. Everybody respected me. But when I heard about Christ, you know what? They reject me now. And I had to die to living for the applause of man. Okay? But, but now I'm found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I am now in Christ, and his death pays for my sin. Before I was trusting in my own righteousness, now my righteousness is from him. It's the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not me performing it's him dying and him living a perfect life that, that covers me before God, okay? But now, Paul goes back to dying again. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He died for me. I died to all that other self-glorification and now I'm in him and now I want to become like him in really living an entire life of dying okay now um, how do we have the ability to live a life of dying well that's why I want to skip to point three and look at our destiny. Because, I said this last week, I think one thing I can do every Sunday is remind us of eternity. If, if we can come in uh, all week long thinking about the things of this world, but we can at least for an hour focus on eternal things, have an eternal perspective, that should motivate us to live differently than the rest of the world. So let's look at our destiny. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. So uh, when he dies and ascends to heaven, when we die, we're going to ascend. Uh, our bodies are going to stay in the grave, but our, our souls will go to be with him. Then when he returns, we will be with him. Where, where, uh, where he is, there will we be. Now, don't miss this. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father is going to honor you. You know, um, when we think of heaven, I think of giving honor and glory to God. But do you know that God will give honor and glory to you? Let me show you where he talks about glory. So here the Father will honor you. <laughs> it's, it's a busy, busy day out there in text land, isn't it? Okay. Um, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. Achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
What is that talking about? You know, um, are any of you C.S. Lewis fans? Yeah. C.S. Lewis, he's known for the Narnia books, and he's known for his space trilogy books and his apologetic books, Mere Christianity. But he also wrote a bunch of essays, and there's one essay, it was originally a sermon, called The Weight of Glory. And in the introduction to the book, uh, a guy named Hooper, not, not the Hooper you know, but um, Walter Hooper writes that the weight of glory is so magnificent I dare to consider it worthy of a place with some of the church fathers. So C.S. Lewis, he does a word study on the word glory and he talks about what it doesn't mean and what it does mean. But after he, he meditates on it, he says, here's what the weight of glory is. To please God to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. Not merely, oh, you poor sinner, you just sit there and watch me be, you know, in my glory. No, to, to not just be pitied, but to be delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. This blew me away this week. God's going to really enjoy me. And really enjoy you. Not just tolerate you. Right? Not just put you in the corner where you're... But, but he will truly enjoy you. And you will bring happiness to him. And C.S. Lewis says it's almost too good to be true. Right? Now, what about though... What I preach every Sunday, that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, not our own righteousness. What, what about the doctrine of justification by faith alone? We're accepted and forgiven and we're considered perfect before God based not on anything we do, but based on his righteousness. That's the doctrine of justification. And I would say... That's your basis for security before God. But don't lose sight of the doctrine of glorification. Where we will be made perfect like Christ. So here in Romans it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Um, you know, people get all caught up in that word predestined, but what are you predestined for? To become like Jesus, to be the image of his son, in order that he might, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus is the preeminent one. Firstborn means preeminent one, okay? 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here we have this, this string of your foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Justified means the minute you trust in him, he gives you his perfect righteousness. So you don't have to fear judgment day. But don't forget that when he, and and I'll, I'll say this, don't forget that the moment we trust in him until we die, he is making us more and more and more like Jesus. And when we are in his presence, he completes the process and we are glorified. What does that mean? Perfect like Jesus. And he will truly delight in us as a father delights in his own son. And we can bring him joy and we can bring him happiness. Right? And he will also look back on this life and forgive all the garbage and say, well done, good and faithful servants for the things that we've done that bring him joy. I don't know about you, but this makes me want to live my life even more for the purpose of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay? So, we see his death. We're going to talk about our death, but our destiny is we get to bring God happiness, and he, of course, brings us fullness of joy. So let's talk about our death now. So Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does it mean to hate your life? This is not advocating disdaining life or having suicidal attitudes toward life. This is a figure of speech very similar to the language that Jesus uses here. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, there it is again, he cannot be my disciple. Well, of course, we're not to, to... literally hate our mother and father, one of the commandments is to honor your father and mother and to love your wife, okay? What he's saying is, your love for me needs to be so great that even natural affections seem like hate compared to it. So this is not saying, oh, I just hate life. It's saying, I love life, but this isn't all there is. There's got to be more than just this. And we are to love the promise of being enjoyed by God so much that we consider this life of little value. So we should be willing to die to the things of this life. Not hold them as the ultimate 
Now, everything you watch on TV, every commercial, every, everything that's advertised is telling you you can have that ultimate joy, buy our product, watch our TV show, watch our football game. This will bring you ultimate joy, and it, and it doesn't. Can we catch on by now? It's not going to. Why? Because we were made for something more. So we should be able to take this life and say, I can die to the things of this life, so I will fully enjoy the next life. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. I consider my life worth nothing. He said that on his way to Jerusalem where he was going to be arrested and thrown in prison pretty much the rest of his life. He says, I can throw my life away because this life isn't all there is. Let me give you another quote from D.A. Carson commenting on this, this verse. He says, the person who loves his life will lose it. It could not be otherwise, for to love one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights, and a brazen elevation of self to the apogee, the top of one's perception and therefore, an idolatrous focus on self, which is the heart of all sin. Such a person loses his life and causes his own perdition, causes his own damnation. That's, that's the natural man. That's the unsaved person where we are the center of everything. But the person who loses his life by contrast, the one who hates his life will keep it for eternal life. This person denies himself or uses another of Jesus' metaphors, to use another of Jesus' metaphors, takes up his cross daily. He chooses not to pander to self-interest, but at the deepest level of his being, declines to make himself the focus of his interest and perception, thereby dying. So let me, um, let me close here with, you go, Close? I thought we were just getting started. No. Um, <laughs> let me close by giving us three dying tests. Okay? Three tests to see how well we are doing dying and following Christ in his dying life. Okay? The first test I'm going to just call, let me skip all that. The privacy test. What, what is the privacy test? Well, if we are denying ourselves and we are being motivated more by what God thinks of us than what people think of us, then we will have a private life with God that's more important than our public life. You know, people who have not died yet are in the church can simply exchange the stage of the world where they get all their accolades for the stage of the church where they get their 
accolades. I once heard a, a sermon where the preacher said, beware of preachers who are always the hero of all their own stories. Okay? And I would say, beware of Christians who are always calling attention to their virtue, to their good deeds, to their witnessing, to their persecutions. Remember Jesus said this? Beware of practicing your righteousness, your good deeds, before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There's that reward idea again. And what he's saying is you should be so motivated by your private walk with God that whether people see your righteous deeds or not doesn't matter. How motivated are you by what people think versus by your walk with God? Now, don't misunderstand, because in this same sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And if we were uh, in a classroom or a Sunday school, I would say, turn to your neighbor and discuss how don't do your deeds before men and do do your deeds before men. How do these fit together? And I would hope we would say, it all has to do with your motive. Right? The, the motive is not to call attention to myself, the motive is for God to receive the glory. But that's the privacy test. How motivated am I just between me and God versus what people think of me? All right. Let me give you a second test. The perseverance test. Now, when it comes to dying, it says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. So you know this isn't talking about literal crucifixion because if you die once it's done, but here you're supposed to do it daily. So this is talking about a lifestyle of daily dying to self. You know in Romans uh, 12 it talks about the fact that we're to offer up our lives as living sacrifices. Picture being Put on the altar and being willing to die. Now, the problem with being a living sacrifice is we can crawl down off the, uh, the altar on a regular basis. Get back up there. Right? We have to regularly crawl back up on the altar. Now, here's, a, here's kind of a test, the perseverance test. Have you ever been around Christians who, if you're in a Bible study or you know, talking with them, and a certain topic comes up, you know, witnessing to people or giving generously or doing good works, and they bring up examples from years ago. And they keep bringing that same 
years ago, like from a previous century. And you want to go, you have anything fresh? Right? You ha- do you have any examples, maybe from not last century, but last week? Right? Uh, Howard Hendricks said this, uh, there's nothing staler than an old athlete. And you could add, and by the way, uh, we once, one time in our life, we went to Las Vegas. Right? And we were walking through what was the, the sports store? Was it in the Caesars or something? I don't know. And there's a sports store where they sell sports memorabilia and cards and stuff. And um, sitting all alone by himself behind the table was Pete Rose. Yeah. All by himself. He's an old athlete. Nobody cared. Right? Now, I'm sure, you know, maybe we were there just at a, uh, at a, at a low time or something. Um, but it's a new day. What about bringing up what happened yesterday or last week? Not way, 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 way long ago. Okay. So that is the perseverance test. Are we getting back up on the altar and dying daily? Right. Then the last one, the protection test. So to die to self means we spend our lives loving the Lord and loving one another. And love is risky. Because when you love... You can get hurt. Right here, I'm going to go back to the last century. Nazareth, hair of the dog. Love hurts. Remember that? <laughs> love hurts. So, we have to choose. Do we want to live our lives protecting ourselves from being hurt? Or by being vulnerable and risking hurt? To die means we risk, okay? Um, I started with C.S. Lewis. I'll end with C.S. Lewis. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So Jesus left the glory of heaven. And yes, he came to die on a cross, but he also chose 12 guys, ordinary guys, and he loved them, and he taught them, and he washed their feet. And one of them came up to him in the garden and betrayed him with a kiss for a thousand bucks. 
I wonder if we asked Jesus, would you do it again? Would you have picked Judas? I think he would say, yeah, I knew all along, and I still picked him. To die, to love, is to be vulnerable. So let's move into communion. And um, just want to kind of walk us through. Would you maybe bow your heads and close your eyes? And Lord, we, we come before you. We realize that your dying, your death, is the only atonement for our sins. So we praise you for your death. And Lord, we desire to be found in you, not having a righteousness of our own, but the righteousness that comes through faith in you. And we desire to imitate you, becoming like you in your death. And then, Lord, we, we revel in the thought that when you say, well done, good and faithful servant, you really mean it. And in some incredible way, you will honor those who have served Christ. So, Lord, we ask for forgiveness for man-pleasing, for forgiveness for crawling off the altar too regularly, and forgiveness for self-protection. Lord, may, may we be a bunch of followers of Jesus who die daily for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.